every Monday to Friday. This is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning. This is Peter Lewis welcoming you to my podcast, Money Talk, for Tuesday, the 14th of November. Nice to be with you once again, and thank you for downloading Money Talk and making it one of the most listened to financial podcasts in Hong Kong. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, President Joe Biden and President Xi Jinping are preparing to meet tomorrow for the first time in more than a year on the sidelines of the APEX summit in San Francisco. US officials said topics will be wide-ranging with the Israel-Hamas war, Taiwan, war in Ukraine and election interference to be discussed. Following the meeting, President Xi will attend a dinner with hundreds of business executives, including chief executive officers of major US companies. The CEO of one of the top oil field services companies said yesterday that the world is facing the highest level of geopolitical risk in five decades as the Israel-Hamas war threatens to spread and the war in Ukraine grinds on. Lorenzo Simonelli, the CEO of Baker Hughes, told the Financial Times in an interview, in my tenure, the geopolitical climate has never been this fragile. Chinese banks extended 738 billion yuan in new loans. That's just over 100 billion US dollars in October. That's the least in three months compared to 2.31 trillion in September. The amount of loans usually falls in October due to seasonal factors, but this year's figures came above the 615 billion yuan in 2022 and also beat forecasts of 665 billion. Meanwhile, outstanding yuan loans grew almost 11% year-on-year, the same as in September, and matching expectations. Inflation in Australia is still too high, and services prices remain elevated. As Acting Assistant Governor of the Reserve Bank of Australia, Marion Kohler said in a speech on Monday that the next stage in bringing inflation back to target was likely to be more drawn out than the first. She said that the recent increase in fuel prices is also a timely reminder that upside surprises from supply shocks could affect headline inflation. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by Asian fund management industry consultant Stuart Aldcroft, David Roche, president and global strategist at Independent Strategy, and our US economics correspondent, writer and broadcaster Barry Wood. And if you want to get in touch, please go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. On Wall Street, US stocks oscillated between positive and negative territory Monday in line with Treasury yields. Equities had been down during morning trading when the yield on the benchmark 10-year US Treasury hit its highest level since November the 2nd. But stocks rebounded as yields retreated from their highest levels of the session. The S&P 500 ended the day down 0.1% at 4,412. The Dow advanced 0.2%, adding 55 points and closing at 34,338. The Nasdaq Composite closed 0.2% lower to end at 13,767. US Treasuries were weaker Monday morning and yields higher after last week's decision by Moody's to lower the outlook on the US credit rating to negative from stable but yields retreated from their highs in the afternoon session. The yield on the benchmark 10-year Treasury was one basis point higher at 4.63%, having reached a high of 4.7% earlier in the session. The yield on the two-year Treasury was two basis points lower at 5.04%, after touching 5.0% in the morning. Brent crude oil rose 1.5% to settle at $82.68 a barrel. 
Gold bounced off its 200-day moving average once again, ending the session half a percent higher at $1,946 an ounce. The US dollar index ended 0.2% lower. The yen edged closer to a 33-year low against the buck earlier in the day, tumbling to as much as 151.92, that's the lowest of the year, before rebounding to 151.2 on speculation that the Bank of Japan might intervene to support the currency. The Japanese currency then subsequently reversed much of that gain, ending the day 0.1% lower at at 151.63. On the mainland, the Chinese yuan was unchanged at 7.2884 renminbi to the dollar. The Shanghai Composite Index rose a third of a percent to 3,047. Hong Kong's Hang Seng Index recovered some of Friday's steep losses as investors eyed the meeting between President Xi and President Biden tomorrow. The Hang Seng added 223 points, or one and a third percent, to close at 17,426. For 2023 so far, the Hang Seng is down almost 12%. That's the worst performer out of the major global indices. And this morning looks like the Hang Seng is going to extend those gains a little bit more, adding about 80 points. That's half a percent. Looks like the index is going to open just above 17,500. You can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. On a rather chilly Tuesday morning for Hong Kong, we welcome our Asian fund management industry consultant and regular correspondent, Stuart Allcroft. Morning, Stuart. And good morning to you, Peter. Yes, you're right. I think we've got past the end of summer and now we're into the autumn period of Hong Kong. Yes, cooler temperatures and uh, no no prospect of it going back up to 30 degrees, I think. My favourite month of the year. David Roche, President of Global Strategist at Independent Strategy. Morning. Are you missing us here? Oh, I miss you all dearly, Uh, but uh, as people, that's about (laughs) it. (laughs) <laughs> That's the best we're going to get out of you. Thank you very much. Also with us over in Washington, D.C., also regularly on a Tuesday morning, Barry Wood, U.S. economics correspondent, writer and broadcaster. Morning, Barry. Good morning, Peter. Well, a lot going on over in the U.S., so let's start there. President Joe Biden, President Xi Jinping are going to meet tomorrow in San Francisco in a much-anticipated meeting. It is going to be only their second face-to-face meeting during the Biden presidency. Uh, and President Xi arrives today to attend the APEC summit, which is going on in San Francisco. U.S. officials said the topics are going to be wide-ranging. It's going to include the Israel-Hamas war, Taiwan, war in Ukraine, election interference, all going to be discussed. But U.S. officials also warned that this is not the relationship of five or ten years ago, and we're not talking about a long list of outcomes or deliverables. Do you think, Barry, we're even going to get a short list of outcomes uh, from, from those discussion points? Because there's quite a, a wide gulf, a wide gap, isn't there, in agreement between the two sides? Yes, there is, Peter. You've got that right. But diplomats, no matter their backgrounds or the country they represent, they're very good at setting very low expectations. That means that anything that's positive is hailed by the journos as extremely pleasant and surprising and good. So I've got a feeling that's where we're at. But it's significant they're meeting. I think the preparation has been really complete. When you had Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, meeting her counterpart Thursday, Friday, they met for five hours. 
So they've gone through all of the list of things that they want to talk about. I think the Americans are particularly concerned about some kind of military to military talks. And it seems to me that that's pretty easy for the Chinese president to agree to. But we shall see. Mm. And what do you think China wants out of out of this? Why, why is President Xi um, doing this? Well, I'm sure my interlocutors would agree. He'd like to see these sanctions lifted. He'd like to see the restrictions on high-tech exports and investments removed. And uh, I'll leave it at that. Is there much I, chance I of that happening? Has... Well, I don't know. What do you think, Stuart? What do you think, uh, well, David? I think from, what, um, from what we are seeing at the moment, this is a time, an un unusual time in some respects, that the Chinese economy is much weaker than it has been for many, many years. And as a result, I think that this is uh, going to have a big impact on the way President Xi Jinping addresses these talks because he will be wanting to see something that will help to support and improve the current status of the Chinese economy. Now, apart from the property businesses that we've talked about endlessly on this program and um, are, are, as, as we've discussed, like the dead parrot, um, I think that mm -hmm. there are plenty of other um, businesses, uh, not least uh, in the electronic vehicles, uh, the chemicals, the um, uh, and, and many other areas of China and China's manufacturing economy that um, will need support. And I think that's where some aspects of uh, what uh, Xi Jinping will be talking to Joe Biden about um, will help to support the economy a little bit. Yes, of course, there are the major geopolitical issues as well. And I'm absolutely sure that uh, both sides will want to try to see what they can do to uh, help out as the um, Israel-Hamas war and the Russia-Ukraine war, um, both of which are creating a, a lot of disturbance across the world. And I'm sure both of them would love to be able to say, well, we can solve this. But uh, it, it's a big ask to try to solve either of those two wars just through talking. Uh, so I think those, those are a few of the things that will come out of it. Uh, for us in Hong Kong, well, you know, maybe um, Hong Kong needs to have a few of its elected officials and others um, taken off the list of people that are not allowed <laughs> to travel around the world, um, which included our chief executive, who um, apparently did get an invite to go to San Francisco, despite the fact that he can't get there. <laughs> okay, well, well, we'll come back to that maybe in a moment. David, let me get your um, your thoughts on this. It has been noticeable, hasn't it, that ahead of this meeting, the sort of the rhetoric out of Beijing has softened quite considerably. That um, it seems much less hard line now towards the US than it was earlier in the year. I'm pretty cynical, really, that this this says anything else but that uh, the Chinese leadership wants to meet with Biden. Uh, because that is seen to be, uh, in fact, reinforcing his own position uh, by actually having such a meeting, and indeed Biden similarly. Uh, but I don't think that it's going to result in real progress. I certainly don't think there's going to be anything on the technology front. I think the geopolitical split in the world is what's driving that, and uh, the Americans, and indeed, if you go back to what Yellen set out for her meetings, with the Chinese authorities uh, last week, 
then she was quite clear that she was sticking to uh, the Washington consensus that we'll do trade when it's a level playing field. We'll cooperate on things, big global issues like uh, climate change and uh, security comes first. So we're not going to let you get your hands on any security, any technology which threatens the United States. I don't think that's changed one second. What I think will come out of this meeting is um, an attempt to set up military communications so that when the uh, things get going in the Straits of, of Taiwan in the South China Sea, uh, the military will be able to talk to each other. I'm pretty cynical that that's going to work because a part of China's strategy is to be unpredictable. It allows China to ratchet things up in the South China Sea, such as it has been doing, uh, you know, by flying and sending its ships closer and closer to Taiwan into the identification zone. And its instrument for doing that is to be unpredictable. It'll, it'll, it'll raise the level and then get everybody used to it. Then it will choose an incident, let's say like a Pelosi visit to, to Taiwan and raise it again. So I think what we'll get is a nice red telephone, but when the Chinese choose not to answer it, will be most of the time, they won't answer it. But on trade, I think people are hoping in vain. I think really the split in the world into global uh, warring factions in a kind of gray zone warfare is what determines that. And I see very little coming out of it. Mm. But Barry, what I find interesting about this meeting is actually what's going to happen after it, rather than President Biden and President Xi Jinping having dinner together, as would normally be the case. Uh, President Xi is rushing off to this dinner with all these business leaders, maybe 300 or so of them, leading business executives of companies. It sort of suggests that that really is his target audience in, in the US. He wants to appeal to uh, US businesses to come and do business in China and to, to invest more in China. Yes. Look, anytime you have 300 people, there's nothing substantive going to happen because <laughs> they're just, it's, it's an event. And that's positive. You're right, Peter. He wants to solicit support and gain investment from this very important business community. I'm sure that all of the executives from the Silicon Valley will be there. I would be surprised if uh, the Chinese president does not make a driving trip through the Silicon Valley. I, I know he's been there before. I assume he has. I don't know that. And uh, you've got a couple companies, uh, one in particular, Apple, that is uh, absolutely instrumental uh, for Apple and the Chinese economy. I would think Tim Cook is almost certainly going to be there. So, yeah, I think it's a uh, it's a charm fest. But as you say, Peter, the fact that there's no follow up private dinner, anything else with the Americans, I think that's as far as Joe Biden wanted to go. He's under a lot of pressure that he's even meeting with the Chinese president. Stuart? I think there's something to add to that, if I may, Peter, um, which is that it's exactly the same applies to the APEC meeting. Because here you have 25, 26, I can't remember the exact number of other states, all of which could be, you know, packaged into some subordinate role, either in the, the you know, the greater south, whatever you want to call it, or the global initiatives, which are coming out of Beijing at the moment to, to provide for lesser countries than China, an alternative system to the rule based order uh, of which the United States is a hegemon. So I think APEC, what, what, what Barry said about, uh, about meeting all the 
the movers and shakers of Silicon Valley is absolutely true. I think Xi is as turned towards the members of APEC as he is towards the United States in coming to this meeting. Mm. The OPEC meeting has sort of been overshadowed, hasn't it, completely by this meeting between the two presidents? Well, no, this is an APEC meeting. It's an APEC meeting as opposed to an OPEC meeting. APEC meeting, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah well, of yes, course it's... it has. Why shouldn't it be? Go I ahead. Mean, the two presidents are, are the, the two key players of this particular group. And um, everybody in the group will want to have some time they'll want to have their photograph taken next to both she and biden and they will want to have on the talk uh, have some talks on the sidelines with both separately from the rest of the their group everyone will want something from it but the, the, but the fact that biden and she are going to be at the meeting will be the best news for all the people there as well do you think it will help That's calm true. foreign investors? Do you think they'll be calmed by this? Because they're pulling money out, you know, quite rapidly from China, aren't they? Foreign direct investment into China has turned negative for the first time since records began. Oh, it's been going for I quite some so. time. I don't I think so. I personally don't, don't think so. Yeah, I, I think that I think foreign direct investment um, is is much more hard-nosed and much more focused on the economic situation of China than the political situation of China at the moment. Uh, yes, of course, if Biden is going to, uh, sorry, if uh, Xi Jinping is going to be talking to 300 business people, how many of those 300 were also in Hong Kong last week? Be interesting to know um, with, their <laughs> private, with their private jets and things. Um, but, uh, you know, he, here's the thing. I mean, he's the, these are the people that uh, form the economy and, and they have big businesses. And you know, we, we know, for example, that uh, Apple is a massive manufacturer in, in China. So it's only natural that Xi Jinping should meet with Apple and, and probably will want to be persuading some of the other um, big co corporations that they could also be manufacturing things in China. I think yeah, portfolio Peter, I think, investment yeah. is going to I think portfolio investment is going to remain very wary of going back into China. I mean, I have so many clients who now view China as, as um, uninvestable. And the reasons go beyond uh, just to put out my own point of view, go beyond simply the economic. It's actually to do with uh, the rights of ownership, the property rights, the change in regimes as regards free market enterprises in China and so on. These are all now seen as being highly uncertain and at the whim of the party. And many investors, I'm talking about portfolio investors here, simply view that as a no-no. Yeah, and FDI is probably going to follow the portfolio investment or follow the signals that come from government. Peter, you mentioned that APEC is an important, or you, you imply it's important, and I agree with that. This goes back to 1989. It was Bob Hawke in Australia. But for the Americans, that became a fundamental priority to really bring together the Asia-Pacific countries. And I'll be interested, since there's been no press attention, and I'm not in San Francisco, of who's going to be coming. I mean, mm. what about the Indians and the Canadians who have been feuding? Will Modi be there? I'm sure Trudeau will be. And you've got countries down in South America, Chile. And, of course, the Russians are members of APEC. Mm. And I'm pretty sure we know that Putin's not coming. But uh, did their finance minister come? Is he Because the finance ministers are meeting now. And what about all this business with the yen 
the renminbi and the dollar and the BRICS currency. There's so many things that these countries could be talking and will be talking about. Well, we know that the uh, Hong Kong financial secretary, Paul Chan, is there. We know that the Indonesian president is there because they met, uh, he met with uh, uh, President Biden yesterday to talk about um, developing um, lithium uh, for, for, for electric vehicle batteries. But you're right, it's been all rather overshadowed. We don't really know who else is there and what they're talking about. Yeah, but that's uh, entirely because the focus has been from media on uh, Xi Biden meeting together. Um, I'm sure that there are probably plenty of communiques coming out from the APEC meeting, but they're, they're just not picking up uh, the interest of the media. There are 21 countries there. Okay. That's not because I'm very wise. No, it is because I just looked it up. Okay. Uh, 21 <laughs> of the 25, 26 uh, who are actually present, whether in whatever, whether it's ministers or prime ministers or whatever. Okay. Look, just an aside. There was a Czech journalist who was wandering through South Beach. That's sort of the artsy part of San Francisco. Wanted to take a picture of that... Um, is it Winter Light, or what it was called, the famous Jack Kerouac bookstore? He was robbed of his equipment because, you know, San Francisco has a huge homeless problem. And I apparently, they have swept these guys away, but not all of them, because the Czechs say that their cameras and other equipment that was taken from them and not returned was worth something like $13,000. So, mm -hmm. you know, we'll see. Mm. What, what's going to be interesting, Barry, is to follow up after uh, this meeting, what happens next? And of course, um, it could all be overshadowed by the fact that in the year's time, President Biden might not even be in the White House. A survey of voters said only 14% of American voters believe that they're financially better off now than when he took office. And a New York Times survey uh, showed that if the election was held today, Donald Trump would win. He would beat uh, Joe Biden. So it is a real possibility, isn't it, that we've got to take into account that he might not be around in a year's time. Well, that's true. It is remarkable to think that we're only 12 months away from a presidential election, less actually, and that uh, the first primary will come in less than two months time in, in Iowa as a caucus and then followed by New Hampshire. So Donald Trump has played his cards very wisely, despite being in a courtroom most of the time in the last few weeks. Um, it's quite amazing to contemplate that he could be the Republican nominee. And I'm shocked, frankly, that uh, Nikki Haley and DeSantis have not sounded the alarm and said to voters, look, Donald Trump cannot be elected. He's unelectable. So we've got to do something to get an alternative because time is running out. Mm -hmm. As to Joe Biden, uh, you know, I come back to my wife's assertion that at some point after the nomination, he'll hand over. But who would he hand over to and how would that happen? So uh, I, I still think, Peter, that we're unlikely to have both of these men as the candidates. But uh, most people think I'm crazy to say that. It is interesting, isn't it, that when you have surveys that show uh, most people don't think they're financially well off, that's going to be significant. I'm sure you remember, Barry, back in 1980, Ronald Reagan famously asked voters whether they were better off than they were four years ago. And, and as a result, he won in a landslide over, over Jimmy Carter. We seem to be in a similar situation. Except there wouldn't be, who knows whether there'd be a landslide. No one knows. The fact is, if it's Trump and Biden, 
Biden will win. I mean, really, when you get to the voting booth and Republican voters contemplate, my goodness, he's behind bars or soon will be. Am I going to vote for this man? I don't think they will. So if it's between the two of them, I think Biden will win, despite what you've just said, that most people disapprove of his economic policies. Mm. Stuart and David, would you like to speculate what a second term Trump government, Trump administration is going to look like? Is it going to be even more chaotic than the first one? Well, I was thinking that if if I was a Ukrainian soldier fighting for democracy and woke up in the morning and stuck my head out of a trench and happened to poke it my face in the direction of America, I might just wonder, what the hell am I fighting for? <laughs> I mean, good Lord, if this is the best that democracy can come up with, well, it's not awfully enticing, is it? Yeah, I, don't, I, I really don't know whether or not um, uh, I, I would like to speculate, quite frankly, and I'm very glad I'm not a U.S. voter. <laughs> um, <laughs> what a choice. Because, yes, the choice the choice at the moment is not great. And, but then, as, as often happens in the U.S., things sort of do start to turn around during the election year itself. Now, whether or not Joe Biden survives or whether or not, um, say, uh, Nikki Hayden or Ron DeSantis get the Republican nomination, um, Trump will probably stand as an independent if he doesn't stand as a Republican. And if he does stand as an independent, then that probably will be very damaging to the Republican Party in the yeah. elections. So I think that that's, that, you know, that's probably Joe Biden's best hope, frankly. Yep. But Bowie, is there a chance that there might be some independents standing against Joe Biden? Um, there's, there's been some names thrown you know, around the recently. Political pundits uh, say that, yes, Joe Manchin in West Virginia has just said he will not um, run for re-election, which could hand that Senate seat to the Republicans and even shift the, the Senate. Uh, I doubt if he would. One thing sure, 2024 promises to be an election year in the states like no other. I mean, go back to 2000 when we had a tie. But nonetheless, this is unique. And I, as, as Stuart just said, a lot can happen between now and Election Day, but it's, it's quite extraordinary. I think one of the consequences of the election itself, without going into who's going to win it, is that during this period, the bipartisan support for things like the funding of Ukraine will fall to bits. It's already falling to bits. The administration has tried to put funding for Israel and funding for Ukraine together in a neat package. And of course, it's promptly been torn apart by, by Congress. So it's going to be very, very difficult to get the amount of money that is needed in Ukraine, given that Russia has proved so resilient and is proving actually at the present time even financially resilient, and that Ukraine is entirely dependent upon the funding from abroad to balance its budget, which means social security and help for the people, and completely dependent upon weapons coming from the United States. I mean, the other NATO countries are doing their bit in increasing military spending, but they don't make the stuff that Ukraine needs. And I think that is a major risk, not only of the outcome of the election, which could possibly prove Putin is right, which is his belief that all he has to do is to wait. But it's not only the outcome of the election, it's during the whole process of the election. And we could get some very nasty surprises out of that. 
Well, the other thing I would raise geopolitically is that there is another election which matters a huge amount around the world, and that is the Taiwanese election. Does the DPP get back in? Uh, in which case, you can expect things across the strait to get a lot worse. Or is it the opposition which gets back in, which is binary? Mm. And also, there's another election coming up, Stuart, which I wanted to you, ask you about in the UK. And um, UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, who many people think is another leader on his last legs, has, uh, has stunned the establishment <laughs> in the UK by bringing back former Prime Minister David Cameron to be his foreign uh, secretary. Now, those of you who don't remember David Cameron, he was Prime Minister uh, who... who held the Brexit vote back in 2016, famously lost it and resigned as a result, uh, and the UK exited uh, the EU following that. So um, what do you make of that, Stuart? It seems like a, a sort of a, a desperate move. Well, no, I don't think it's a desperate move. I thought it was a rather smart move, to be honest, because uh, Cameron has won elections um, and he's also lost Brexit. So he, he knows both sides of the argument. I, I think one of the good things about David Cameron is that he is very widely respected in the international sphere, much more so than he is in the local UK sphere. Um, but bringing back the person who lost Brexit as the foreign secretary, um, that's, a, that's the stunning move of it, I would, I would say. Yes, I mean, there was, a, there was going to be um, a cabinet reshuffle at some point, and it was triggered by the Home Secretary saying things that she shouldn't have been saying, um, or, or saying things uh, in a in a newspaper article that she was told not to have said. So she gets fired, and then the reshuffle occurs. Um, so yes, that's that's what's been going on. But the reshuffle, bear in mind, is being timed. Um, and being made so that it could probably make the Conservative Party electable again in approximately 12 months when the next general election in the UK is due to occur. Um, the next general election can, can be any time between now and January 2025. But, of course, the, um, the, the current uh, position is that the Conservatives are very a long way behind the Labour Party in the polls for the moment. Um, but that always happens in between general elections. And then when it comes to the general election, they get a lot narrower. And I think we, I think that bringing Cameron back, he will be an asset during the election period. Um, and maybe some of the other changes um, and the objectives of Rishi Sunak to, to improve the economy will have started to work. Is he rather tarnished, though, his reputation rather tarnished because he was involved in a big lobbying scandal, wasn't he, with Greensill Capital? He also tried to set up a billion dollar UK China investment fund that fell apart because relations between Beijing and, and London didn't go so well, even though he was calling for a new golden era with China. Well, he and George Osborne were calling for the golden era. They were they were talking about the improvement in relations between the UK and China. They did their best to actually make that happen. Um, the fact that it didn't was um, uh, perhaps unfortunate for those of us who are in this part of the world and would like to see better relations. Uh, but there are many, many hawks in the UK government about China, and uh, maybe that's something that, um, that, that Cameron will change. No, I don't think he's t tarnished. I think he's served uh, what, the last six years out of government. So he's, he's had his time off, as it were. 
and and now he can come back and he can start to to do things and and, and be effective. David, is the UK on your radar screen at all? It is in a kind of much more minor way. I must say, uh, I disagree. I think Cameron is coated with stuff I don't want to be coated with. I think he has an untrammeled <laughs> record of making absolutely horrible judgments, Brexit being one of them. The question of lobbying to have his former employers, uh, you know, favoured by government is another. And I think, you know, opening up to China when it was clear from many of his advisors, which at the time I actually talked to him at one point, that China had enormous structural problems. I think he's got an absolutely untrammeled record and a consistent one of misjudgment. And I don't think you get born again at his age or my age. So I would expect that the next government in the UK, whenever it happens, will be a Labour government uh, by a very wide majority. And I'm not saying they're any good. I'm just saying that's what you get. Barry, does, uh, does do UK elections, I mean, David mentioned earlier, obviously, uh, Taiwan election, pretty important. Do UK elections matter anymore apart from outside of the UK? Well, they do matter, but I don't think the American public and the American media have focused on it at all. Uh, you know, they always like to do a, a, a UK story, but it's usually about the uh, the monarchy. Look, um, I, I, I think the Americans are so focused on the Israel-Gaza war and secondarily the Ukraine-Russia war and third on the travails of the Republican Party and whether the government will run out of money at the end of this week that they can't handle another UK story. So, and let alone Taiwan, that hasn't made, the only thing that's said about Taiwan, Peter, is my God, let's go to war against China. I mean, those are my words. No one really wants that, but there's a lot of lack of information about Taiwan in the United States. Mm. In the meantime, of course, the UK economy is stagnating, isn't it? It didn't show any growth um, in the in the third quarter, although that was slightly better than people thought. They did think the, the UK economy was going to um, slide into recession. But if you look at the major economies after um, after COVID, uh, the, the British economy is not doing that well. It's grown about 1.8% compared to, say, 7.4% expansion in the US. The Eurozone's 2.9% growth. It's, Stuart, it is rather languishing, isn't it? Uh, yes, it is, but I don't think that's a bad thing. I, I think that uh, the fact that it is still growing, um, whatever the number, is is more important than it being uh, a negative figure. Uh, so I would I would be I would be comfortable with the fact that the economy, despite everything that's been going on, um, is still in the in the positive territory. Just mm. I'll tell you why I think the UK is very important. It is very important in terms of NATO. It is very important as regards the standing of its military and its aid to Ukraine. It has played a really superlative role. And of course, being Irish, you have to drag that out of me backwards by the teeth. But it's a fact. And I think the, 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 the fact that Brexit is over, okay, it's a mistake. But that the UK is now drawing closer to Europe militarily and as regards confronting the major threat to Europe and the world, which is Russia. We'll talk about China another day. I think that's a very, very important and underestimated role for the UK, which has produced a range of first-class ministers on defence 
and foreign policy, which actually got the UK there in the aftermath of Brexit. And I think that is that that's something which is often the UK is not given enough credit for. Now that now that Rishi Sunak has thrown out the right wingers in his in his cabinet, and he seems to have moved more to the centre, some people say he's even moved to the to the left now. Do you think that could uh, maybe precede the UK and the EU moving more closer together economically as well? No, I think so. But I think the the, the uh, it, it started with the defence, with the joint actions concerning Russia's uh, uh, invasion of, of Ukraine. But it has also come down to both the Europeans and the UK are looking for pragmatic ways to join together again without actually trying to introduce uh, any a measure which would, you know, reverse Brexit. That would just stir up, a, you know, a hornet's nest. But I think moving together in all sorts of ways has already happened. And I expect it to continue. Yeah, I think David's right in that respect. Um, the the EU is definitely wanting to move closer to the UK, and Cameron, as foreign minister, will probably aid that. So, again, we come back to that move. It's quite a smart move to help that along. Maybe Rishi Sunak believes in in Europe much more than um, he's been given credit for. Okay, let's finish off in China because we've got important economic data coming out tomorrow. Retail sales, industrial production, fixed assets, investments. Some private surveys have shown that China's economy is losing more momentum. Uh, Consumption slowed. Private business confidence lost momentum in October, according to a couple of independent surveys and an indication of Chinese consumer demand for recreation and transport, which was published by uh, QuantCube Technology, uh, showed both of them falling in October as well, and private business sentiment, according to a survey by the Chungkong Graduate School of Business, also declined in the month. Um, David, what should we be looking out for um, tomorrow? If you, if you look at these private surveys um, and the anecdotal evidence, it does seem that the, the economy is, is still languishing. Well, I think it's bouncing along the bottom. I don't think these surveys tomorrow will produce more than the kind of volatility you get every month. One month tells you things are getting better. You see a little improvement in retail sales. You see an improvement in in in, in the amount of property that's sold and so on. And then the next month you get a bad figure. So I, I don't think tomorrow is going to upset the trend of volatility at the bottom. But what I think where uh, I really don't see um, the progress which is needed is the surgical approach to the structural problems which China has. Uh, whether you're talking about real estate, whether you're talking about, well, is it really the the Communist Party which comes ahead of the economy or is it the economy which drives the Communist Party? It's the, it's the traditional Marxist uh, dialectic dilemma, which is um, uh, you assume as a good Marxist that um, the economy follows the diktat of the party. But of course, as we all know, it's not quite that way around, is it? And I don't see that overall problem being handled in China. So I would say my view encapsulated is tomorrow's figures like today's TSF figures are pretty well irrelevant. Uh, it's the volatility at the bottom. I think China's structural growth rate, however, is a major problem in looking out. And I would see it coming down to three or four percent in, say, David, years. what about uh, yes. deflation? Uh, prices are going down in China. Look, and what about the it, renminbi? Well, they're all kind of linked. I mean, a couple of comments. Number one, uh, deflation is happening at the back end of the supply chain. It's much more in producer prices than in consumer prices. It's not deflation like you got in Japan. 
and it's not going to be. It's far easier to say, okay, well, China is the new Japan. There are so many differences. It's just not true. What you are, what the, the deflation is telling you is that the heavy duty state-owned enterprises at the back end of the production change, the iron, the steel, the chemicals, they're having a pretty lousy time, which is part and parcel of the whole structural issue. The renminbi, well, it would be nice to say, look, you're stuck in a trilemma here. You cannot have a falling interest rate and a stimulating economy and at the same time expect to, to, to have a strong currency. But of course, in China, you can because you can control the currency. So don't get into the trilemma of liberal market economics when you look at China. There are far more things hidden behind bushes than the liberal economics will ever discover. So they're the two comments I would make on that. The PBOC is effectively, they've, they've pegged the yuan to the dollar at the moment, haven't they? They've just reduced the volatility to zero. Yes, and, and if you want to do that, you can do that for quite long periods of time if you use the levers of a command economy. If you lose, use the levers of the, the market economy, which is, after all, a fair percentage of what China does economically every day in life, then you would assume that the, the, the weak economy, the need to stimulate, in particular by cutting interest rates and pumping money into the system, would dictate a weaker yuan. But, and for, you know, it's not that way. If, 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 if they decide that they're going to fix it at this rate, and anybody who tries to break that rate, like Chinese banks, they're going to have a really, really, really bad time if they go against what they're being told to do. Mm -hmm. We've got to remember that if China has $5.5 trillion worth of reserves, $3.5 trillion are in the PBOC, and the rest are in the banks or the CIC. So, you know, the levers of the economy are not like uh, Milton Friedman said. <laughs> They're actually a mixture of Marxist levers, party control, and free market principles. So if they want to hold the UN stable for a period of time, not forever, but then they can do it. So I think the trend will be down, but it'll be down in an orderly way. Okay. Well, thank you all very much for your thoughts there. Very interesting discussion. Uh, once again, you heard there David Roche, who is President and Global Strategist at Independent Strategy, our US economics correspondent over in Washington, D.C., Barry Wood, and our regular Tuesday correspondent, Asia Fund Management Industry Consultant, Stuart Aldcroft. You're listening to Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Thank you for listening to Money Talk this morning. You can find more business and finance information from around Asia in my daily newsletter, which is at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. I'll be back tomorrow when I'll be joined on the show by Enzio von Fahl, Capital Preservation Specialist at Financial Shield, and Andrew Sullivan, founder of Asian Market Sense. With a view from Japan is John Byrne, Vice Chair of Research at the Asian Development Bank Institute. Have a great day. Money Talk.